Blog Talk Radio. Choices, decisions, frustrations, and pain. Knowing I'm going to forget her someday. While I still can, I'll challenge all my loved ones, every friend, to look inside their hearts and understand that I. Well, welcome, everybody, to the Alzheimer Speaks radio show. November is the month for Alzheimer awareness and also the National Family Caregivers Month. So we've got uh, lots of great information that will be coming your way, and I'm sure if you're scoping out the Internet um, and if you're on Twitter, you're going to find lots of good support for both of those areas. I'm Lori LeBay, and I'm the host and founder of Alzheimer Speaks, which is an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort. And at our core, we believe that collaboratively, we can win this battle against dementia by joining forces, sharing knowledge, and having everyday conversations about life with dementia. I believe we can remove the stigmas attached to memory loss. We can help those in the trenches take back their lives and live with purpose, and together we can help professionals understand the true needs, not just their perceptions of those dealing with dementia. Here at Alzheimer's Speaks, we want to give voice to everyone afflicted with memory loss, along with their care partners, both family and professionals, as well as advocates supporting the cause, so we can all live purpose-filled lives. By raising awareness uh, together and sharing our real everyday life stories about living with memory loss, we give hope. No longer can we be driven by fear, and together we can teach people how to live with the disease, not as it. We hope you'll join us and check out our website, which will give you access to all of our platforms, the blog, the resource website, the radio show, and YouTube. There's also free um, tools and things you can get there as well. Just go to www.alzheimerspeaks.com, and we'd love for you to share the word about both the radio show and the website because, again, it's, it's all of us working together to get the information to the people in need. Our channel expert is Rick Phelps, and Rick actually has early-onset Alzheimer's disease known as EOAD, and he pops into the show from time to time. So if Rick is able to join us today, I will definitely grab him and pull him into the show. Rick is the founder of Memory People on Facebook, which is a wonderful support group for those with early memory loss, their care partners, as well as business professionals and advocates. So if you haven't checked it out, please, please do so. Um, today we have just a great show for you. I'm really excited um, with both of our guests that we have today. The first is Monica Helmsies with MindStart. And Monica is an occupational therapist and the owner of MindStart. MindStart um, has produced a line of dementia care products designed to stimulate the mind and use the abilities of the person 
at whatever level they, they still are at. Monica has um, worked in dementia care for over 15 years, from nursing assistant to um, activities and occupational therapist. Her passion is to bring cognitive stimulation, connection, and joy to people with dementia and their caregivers through her MindStart products. Um, she has a great website, a blog, and a fabulous monthly newsletter that I, I would encourage everyone to sign up for. I've had the opportunity to work with Monica in the past, and she is just full of wonderful tips and insights as to how to engage those with dementia at any stage. It's my honor to share the show with her today. Welcome, Monica. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful, and thanks for all those kind words, and, and the sentiment is is shared. I'm, I, I really appreciate Lori and all the work that she has done for people with dementia, and I'm glad to be a part of your show today. Well, good. I'm just hoping my voice stays with me. I've got uh, got a little cold going on. The old allergy season is kicking in, and um, every now and then my voice goes. So um, you may just have to carry the show here for a while. Um, but I, I can do that if needed. <laughs> great. I want to start out, Monica, if you can tell our audience what an OT is or an occupational therapist, because it's a phrase that we use a lot, but not everybody knows really what it is um, you do. Yeah, great. Well, an occupational therapist, um, this is how I explain it to my patients. Um, I tell them, think of occupation. The word occupation is everything that you do in a day. It's from the things you do from the time you wake up in the morning um, till when you go to bed and even when you sleep. All of those things are occupations, eating, um, just the basic everyday skills of getting dressed, getting ready for the day, um, planning ahead what you're going to eat for supper, um, if you're going to work, um, knowing what time you need to be there. Um, so every every task you do in a day is really an occupation. Um, and so an occupational therapist will help people to do those things than in their everyday life um, that are needed um, and things that are things that they would like to do, too. So it includes those everyday basic skills if they're having trouble with that. It can include hobbies. It can include the job they may be doing. It includes the roles that that person carries if they're a, a spouse or a parent or um, a son or daughter. Um, so it, it involves all of those things and helping people by um, either helping the person to get better so that they can fulfill those roles and do those things, or a lot of times, especially in the um, case of Alzheimer's disease, when someone is not going to get um, those skills um, much better, but it, there's a lot of things we can do to adapt to the environment around them um, or adapt the task at hand so that it's easier to do. Um, and we do that from our, our knowledge, our base, um, kind of our background training includes a lot of science and physiology and anatomy, so we have all that background. Um, but on top of that, and what, what makes occupational therapy kind of unique is, is our kind of art to, that we add to our profession and being able to look at a person and their um, level where they're at right now and what are their skills and abilities, and then how can we match the task at hand so that it can be successful for them or ma adapt the environment around them so that they can be successful. Um, so that's a in, a, in a nutshell, kind of, what occupational therapy does. Um, they work with kids. Some therapists work with kids in all ages, but in my niche is working with people with dementia. 
Well, that's uh, that's a nice way to explain it because I think so often people think it's just work related, but it's it's all of our daily tasks and how we how we function, and so that really makes it a, a broader broader um, stance there. How in in terms of your work as an occupational therapist, um, how do you think your perspective is unique when it look when you're looking at individuals um, that have dementia? and or um, their caregivers in terms of working with them? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, um, like I said, we have the background of um, understanding um, the brain and how that interacts, functions of the brain and how they interact with um, everyday life um, to, do, to be able to complete a task. Or, so we are trained in what's called task analysis. Um, so we can look at, what to us might be an easy task of making a piece of toast and look at it and say, well, really, there's a lot of components to making that piece of toast. First, I have to know um, what I have in the cupboard, and I need to know where that item in the cupboard is. So there's some planning ahead. Um, then knowing, okay, that safety considerations, um, that I wouldn't want to put a knife in there if, if, the, if the toast gets stuck in there. Um, then knowing timing, um, okay, well, it's been in there a little too long, you know, I wonder if it's burning. Um, and then when you when it comes out, being able to open a container, being able to get a knife, know where that's at, be able to distinguish a knife from a fork. Um, and these are all steps that some people have trouble with along the way, whether it's from dementia or a stroke or a physical um, difficulty. Um, once they get that, you know, find that and being able to butter the bread. So there's a lot of cognitive components that go into a task like that as well as, as physical components. Um, but with dementia, usually what affects it is most is the cognitive components. So their hands and fingers and strength usually is just fine, and those things work fine. Um, but what breaks down is kind of the planning, maybe the planning step of what do I need to do first, second, Third, what do I need? The step of memory, um, you know, where where I where are items? Um, the step of foresight, or that's a cognitive process, foresight, knowing um, what are some potential problems that could happen and how can I avoid them? Um, and then knowing how to fi- er- fix an error if something does happen, how do I fix it? Those are a lot, all these cognitive components that happen just routinely for us who don't have a, a cognitive um, deficit, they happen without, um, just subconsciously. Um, but with a person with dementia, those can all be um, affected at any step of the way. And I think that's why it's unique for occupational therapists to work with a person because we can see where for that person isn't breaking down in a task. And it's going to be different for each person, um, even two people with an early stage dementia um, they may be kind of in the same stage, but they're affected differently. So maybe someone with a frontal lobe dementia may have more difficulty with their communication um, skills, and somebody else um, with an Alzheimer's type dementia, memory may be the, the primary component. Um, so we can look at you know, that individual person and what is breaking down in being able to do a task, and then what can we do to um, adapt that task so it can be easier for them to do Maybe we take some of the steps out, and now they're going to be successful. Or maybe we put some visual cues in the environment so that um, they can see that, and it gives them a clue as to what the next step is. 
Um, sometimes when it gets to later stages, then it's um, you know still adapting the environment, but it also involves a lot of caregiver training so that they can help set up these steps and know how to cue a person. Um, so I think that's why occupational therapy, we have a very good um, fit for people with dementia because really what's breaking down or happening for them is the difficulty to do their everyday tasks, and that's what occupational therapists do is we work on those everyday tasks that someone's needing to be able to do. Wow. It was really interesting listening to you break down, <clears throat> excuse me, making a piece of toast. Mm-hmm. How many steps, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> that we forget about. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely incredible. And you just like boom, 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 boom. You see all and I didn't even name where, them all, yeah. <laughs> yeah, where us but. as just everyday people and caregivers go, just make the toast. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> you know, and, and that frustration, yep. I think, can come out. Um, but just listening to you and going, well, then you have to do this, and then there's this, and there's these skills, and we just uh, we take so much for granted because, like you said, it is really unconscious so much of what we've learned um, that we don't even realize how far we've come and how complex um, a simple task like making toast can be. So when you're working with caregivers, then, do you um, help them in terms of structuring different tasks as far as giving them ideas for cues, like maybe the night before they put out the peanut butter and jelly and the knife and the plate and they have the bread and everything is on the counter for the person um, to be able to get rid of some of those steps as far as the, the search and destroy trying to find things? or Right, yeah, that's the perfect example of um, what we call like setup. So um, some people can do very well once um, the task is kind of set up for them because it eliminates a lot of the steps of knowing what they need to do the task. So in your case, peanut butter and jelly and a knife um, and a plate. Um, so they don't have to think, what do I need and then where do I find them all? Um, so And once it's all set up like that, it can make oftentimes um, a person can be successful then because a lot of those steps have been eliminated. Um, <clears throat> it can be broken down more for somebody who is at a later stage dementia, and maybe you put the knife in their hand and with some peanut butter on it, and so you've now taken a few more of the steps away, so you've gotten the peanut butter out and got a knife ready to go, and then you kind of demonstrate or take their hand, get them started on um, spreading, spreading, and then that is kind of a, we'd like to tap into um, activities or motions and um, things that we've done habitually over time. So spreading something on is one of those things that we've done so many times in our life that if we get, those are some things that we can tap into, especially in a middle stage dementia when you feel like the person doesn't have as many abilities, but if we can tap into some of those things that they've done, wrote over time, over and over, that we find they actually, you know, they can do them. So things like spreading um, an item onto a piece of bread, stirring, um, when it comes to brushing teeth, people usually can brush their teeth, comb their hair. So you want to tap into those skills that the person still does have um, at those later stages of dementia and, and, and let them use them because um, just like anything, you've, I'm sure you've heard the phrase of use it or lose it, which usually refers to physical um, condition and in, in doing exercise and things, but the same is the uh, the case with people w- with cognition. Um, and we use our cognition every day just because we work and do things, and so we don't have to be as mindful about it. But somebody with dementia who's losing some skills and have more people taking over tasks for them, 
we don't want to do so much for them that they're really not using the cognitive abilities that they still do have um, because it won't do them a good service. They will, and there's actually been studies been shown, um, um, and I can tell you more about it if you'd like, but in that program they were using activities, a two-hour-a-day two activity session, um, which included puzzles and some socialization and songs and just time together, and those participants who are nursing home uh, residents, when they had the two-hour-a-day sessions, five days a week, compared to the group that did not have any of that cognitive stimulation um, throughout the day, the group who did receive the stimulation um, maintained steady on their cognitive test store scores and on their abilities to do activities um, of daily living, um, dressing and things like that. And the group who did not have the cognitive stimulation group had declined. Um, so I, I think you know that that shows what, what we are kind of already we knew just by watching people, but that really they still have to be stimulated at whatever level they're at, and using those abilities the person still does have. Um, and I think that's always the challenge for a caregiver because they're overwhelmed with everything, um, and it may sound like oh I got another thing I have to do and fit into the day, but that's where I, I hope that MindStart can help with making those things easier, both by um, our products that are um, helpful in that way, and then also we have educational content on our website and newsletters so that taking an every ta everyday task of like making toast or peanut butter and jelly that you might be making for a snack anyway, how can I ha incorporate the person and pull them in to do, you know, even if it's one minute of this task, that, that's them doing some cognitive stimulation and being engaged. And that would be what we're looking for. Yeah, and it's giving them purpose that they belong, you know, right. in this environment. And I think sometimes as caregivers, we're so busy getting the task done and, you know, speeding through things, we forget about this person has to feel like they're part of us, not that we're just doing stuff for them, but that they really belong here and have purpose and are giving back to us. Because we all know how much better we feel when we give to somebody else. Um, a person with dementia is no different. You know, they still get joy and satisfaction out of completing a task or doing for others as well. Anyways, I'm a I'm a firm believer of that. I don't have any scientific facts to back that up, but I've I've been around this oh. for 30 years, and I, I'm sure it's out there someplace. But there um, is. I mean, as far as being engaged and doing things beyond what this more recent study said about um, maintaining cognition and test scores. There's other studies that say, um, you know, a person who is engaged in, in, in doing some things throughout the day, people with dementia, have better sleep, they have less um, behaviors such as um, maybe asking questions over and over, um, they're, um, it may be wandering or restlessness, that kind of thing. Um, so there's definitely a lot of, and better quality of life. There's research studies that are, and we have that information on our, our website as well if people are interested, but there is a lot of research backing up, um, you know, giving per people purpose and using what skills they have um, when you, when you can, can adapt that into your day. Okay. Well, I really want to get into talking about MindStart and why you, why you started it, because I know we've got a short time with you today with your schedule, but we can always always have you back because you're just filled with such great information. But can you tell people a little bit about 
why you decided to start your company and what it has to offer. Yep. Well, my company, um, Mind Start, we have, um, based on my background as an occupational therapist, I have created and designed, um, adapted what I say are like hobby um, type items. So um, we have um, jigsaw puddle, puzzles. Um, we have an adapted bingo style game. We have adapted word searches, um, some lacing cards, which are an adapted version of um, sewing. Um, we have some new conversation cards. And the reason I started MindStart, it's been two years now, um, just in my work as an occupational therapist, when I would work with my patients, um, I had a number of patients who were um, really into doing jigsaw puzzles. And they had the 500-piece puzzle spread out on their table, but it would never get touched anymore because they were declining and it was it was too much for them. And then we tried, you know, the family had tried a 100-piece puzzle and it was still way too much. Um, and the next step often was a child's puzzle. That's all that they're there was available, um, or the person just wouldn't do the activity anymore. Um, so sometimes I was adapting and making my own um, either kind of a word search puzzle or something like that that the person could use, um, and that was always part of my occupational therapy treatment when I was working with someone is making, uh, amongst other things we were working on, but one component was always um, based on this person's ability level right at this time and based on their past hobbies and interests and what they've liked to do in the past, what are some activities or things that we can have them keep doing um, in an adapted way? So once I'm done with therapy, I can teach the staff or a family member on how to do this with the person, and then that can be carried on even when therapy's um, discontinued. Um, and so because a number of things at that time, I didn't like what I could find on the market. I didn't like having to give a kid's puzzle to my patient, or I didn't like that there wasn't, a, when I recognized that there wasn't kind of that next step for a hobby. So somebody who had been doing word searches and and couldn't do the adult ones that you buy off the bookshelf anymore, we didn't have that next step one that is just a little bit easier. So like in, since our word searches have um, uh, our first step word search um, doesn't have any words that go backwards or upside down um, or diagonal. They're just horizontal and vertical. So that makes it a little bit easier. Then um, we have a next adapted level, if the person would need it, where it's much letter less letters in the grid and they're bigger letters that they're looking through and there's only six words that they're looking for. And then we have an adapted next level where if if that's becoming too difficult, the words in the grid are actually in bold. So it really helps them to find the word in the word search. Um, so that's kind of an example of how our, our products um, are adapted. And, and that's, that's what I was looking for. And I was doing it on my own um, kind of at the time. But when I started making prototypes and had good interest in them, I thought, you know, I can reach way more many people um, by having what this as a, an actual product that's available on the market for people. Um, and not everybody has access to a therapist um, or um, staff doesn't always um, maybe know. Um, not everybody gets a therapy order either for occupational therapy, so there has to be reasons it's indicated. So I thought, you know, I can reach a lot more people by having these adapted products where the adaptation that I might do to make a, a task easier is already built into the product. 
Um, so like our Mind Start Jigsaw puzzles, we have a 26-piece puzzle and a 12-piece puzzle. So they have less pieces, of course, but they also, the image that is in the, the puzzle was based on my task analysis of watching people with dementia put puzzles together and seeing how they um, kind of really just went by trying to make two pieces fit. They didn't really, they don't, at a certain level, kind of start losing what the big picture of a puzzle is going to be and putting the outside pieces together first and inside. They're just trying to get a few pieces to ma put together. And so the image in there has less detail um, and a lot of just kind of color groups so that people can say, okay, there's a blue on this edge and a blue on this edge, and, you know, I'm going to see if they go together. And they become more successful um, because of the design that is in the puzzle um, than if it were just a, a traditional puzzle. Well, that makes a lot of sense, breaking it down like that and, um, you know, how how important that is for them to still be able to do tasks in in your research and, and over your years of working with people, um, you know, why do you think it's important to keep a person with dementia doing things, both from a family side and a professional side? Can you speak to that a little bit? I know you've touched on it, but... Yeah, yeah. Um, well, we're just um, what we call occupational beings. I know that's a word that, we, of course, we use more in our profession, occupational therapy, but what that means is that we, as humans, we do things. Um, I don't know if you've ever had a time where you've been sick or in bed rest for some reason, and, you know, most people get, even though it sounds like a great thing when it actually happens, you get kind of stir-crazy after a while um, because we're, we like to do things. Um, and it can be just our everyday things or, you know, and everybody's different, what hobbies they enjoy or um, what, what jobs they've had in the past. Um, so I think that... Um, when dementia affects those everyday things, um, oftentimes a person with dementia, and it depends on the individual type, but they may have trouble with memory, you know, trouble with communicating, trouble with planning things, trouble with awareness and judgment and safety. So, of course, all those things are going to impact, potentially impact everything that tasks they do in the day. Um, and as a person encounters more difficulty and maybe has more frustration, oftentimes the result is a person starts doing less. And, well, I'm just not going to try that anymore because it's too difficult for me or too overwhelming for me, which is a natural reaction. Um, but inactivity leads to, for the person with dementia, can lead to a faster rate of decline. Um, depression a feeling of isolation, like you said, not feeling purpose. It's just not a good feeling, but they also, the person probably does not have the ability to change it for themselves. So they wouldn't be in that state. They they need, at a certain point, then they need either someone to be helping with some task setup, like we talked earlier, so that they can still do the rest of the steps and do the task. Or maybe they would do well with an adapted product, like a MindStart puzzle or word search um, where a lot of the steps are already taken out, but it's still an adult-oriented um, product with things to do in um, things to do. And the other thing I wanted to mention about our products is we try to make them very user-friendly so that the caregiver, even though they don't have the background that I do, they, 
they can have read through the directions and understand how they can do this activity um, and how to set it up and ways to, to adapt it. If it's hard, too hard to do this way, here's another alternative. Try this way. And the other thing we have in our products um, and on our website is we offer products that, that meet different stages of dementia, so early and, and I call them activity levels, but they correlate to stages of dementia. So what's, what's good for somebody at more of an early activity level, early stage of dementia, is, is going to be different than maybe for someone at a middle to a later stage. Um, and our products, on, on the website, we can explain what those different activity levels are and then how those products can align with that. Or even like in our rainbow, we have a bingo-style game called Rainbow Bingo, and in there, it'll tell you how do you set this up for an early activity level. How do you play it at a middle activity level? And it has all these adaptations right in the one same game so that you can have people at different various stages. Um, or you start with a person who's in early stage and you keep, are able to play the game as they progress um, and later maybe need a middle stage adaptation. Um, then you can read the directions and figure out how to do that and then um, play at that stage. But I think um, we kind of did touch on before what the importance is. I'd say that it's just keeping people active is part of who we are. Um, and the person just needs some help along the way um, to keep that going at whatever stage they're at. Um, even at the latest stages of dementia, people still respond generally to music. So music is always a wonderful thing. And I tell people, it doesn't even matter how your voice is. <laughs> it's not, that's not the point. Um, Singing a song or um, can trigger memories, and you can see amazing things for people who are really not even very communicative and hear a song or something that it relates to them, and they're singing those words along with it. So even at the latest stages of dementia, there are ways to engage a person, and for them that is their activity. Well, that <clears throat> that's wonderful. Um, I just love your attitude and the way that you have approached your company because being able to utilize the same product as the disease progresses and staging that for us, working with people, I mean, that's wonderful because, you know, learning new things as the, as the disease progresses is difficult. And so if you can use the same tools, um, it makes it easier for both the person with dementia and those um providing the service or, you know, playing the game or doing the task, how, however you want to word it, um, it just makes it so much easier and it makes a lot more sense. And I think it reduces caregiver stress, too, when they don't have to take on something else. They're already comfortable with this. They know the person likes this um, and being able to, to move that forward. I know with your puzzles, I have heard so many communities um, just rave about them because um, their their clients, their residents can work with them. They love them. The colors are bright. Um, the, the photographs are 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 simple, but just beautiful. Um, yet they're adult oriented. Versus a lot of times people will start taking kid puzzles, and um, a lot of people have problems with that. So I think you've done really an absolutely fabulous job with the various types of things that you've come up with and the way that you communicate how to work with them, um, which not everyone is good at doing. A lot of times they can come up with the concept, but they can't always communicate how to utilize it or why it's important. And I think that's one of the things that I enjoy working with you so much is that you 
you really are a good communicator in terms of explaining things. And so I would really encourage people to uh, go to Monica's website, sign up for her newsletter. Her newsletter is fabulous. It's it's not really long, um, but you will get lots of great information each and every time in terms of how to engage people and resources out there for you to tap into. Um, so, excuse me, my throat is just a, well, just a little dying. Well, can I tell people how, how they can sign up for the newsletter? Please, please do. Okay. Um, so my website for MindStart is www.mind-start.com. And on the home page, there is a button to the left that says um, sign up for newsletter. So that's one way. Um, we also are on Facebook if you look up MindStart. Um, and then I have a new option where you can text. So if you would like to do that, you can text MindStart, so M-I-N-D-S-T-A-R-T, to the number 22828. And that, um, from your iPhone, if you have, if you have that, um, or any, text, any phone that texts, has textability. So text MindStart to 22828. And... Um, You'll type in your email address, and that will sign you up as well. So just a different option. Oh, great. That is that is wonderful um, because I know people definitely are going to want to reach out to you. Do you have any last tips that you want to share with our audience? I want to be conscious of your your time here, and we will definitely have you back on the show again, Monica. But why don't you share any last tips that you'd like to with our audience? Um, last tips, I, I, would, I would just say... Um, the word activity sometimes um, it's a good thing because what we're talking about is people in doing, being engaged and doing things. But I don't want people to think that it's just another thing I have to do in my day is think of an activity. So sometimes that word almost does a little bit disservice. But think of it really as just doing things. So anything in the day of doing things can be an opportunity for engagement or stimulation. It can be when setting the table. It can be setting napkins out for each place setting. I've worked with um, with families, and you know, that's probably why you know I have some good thought background of how I did this with my patients. So, and sometimes I would teach a wife how to do this with their spouse, and they'd say, "I just never thought of that. I never thought of him help, helping to set the table." And, yeah, she had to break it down so she would just give him the knives. And, but then he knew how to put them by each place setting. So that can be your activity or your moment of stimulation, engagement. The person is feeling purposeful. They're using skills that they still have. You are feeling a little less burdened. I mean, it's a win-win really for both um, because the caregiver can have a, have a little bit of help as well and the person is going to be less likely to ask, be asking questions over and over when they're engaged in a task. So it's a moment of respite for you, too. So it's, I would, that's one way I say it is it really is a win-win for win for the patient or the person with affected by a dementia and the win for the caregiver. Um, but it's just kind of thinking, that's what I would encourage people to do. Think about how can you involve the person in your life with dementia in, in, a, ta- in a task during the day or one of those when you're doing something. And whether it is a hobby-style item, like a puzzle, jigsaw puzzle, 
there's always a place for those. But don't forget just everyday activities or things that we do um, around the house and how you might pull in um, the person to help you with that. Well, I think that's a good point because when we think of activity, we think of entertainment. I have to keep them busy, you know. I have to be the entertainment director instead of thinking of maybe everyday chores and tasks um, that they can assist with if it's vacuuming or dusting or um, folding clothes for laundry or helping set the table. I mean, you think of all the things that we do during a day, walking out with you to get the mail. Um, There's lots of things that people can be included with, give them purpose, and um, make our lives easier as well um, when we frame it in the right perspective in terms of what are they capable of doing um, and how will they uh, feel engaged and purposeful. Because, again, and I think if we just reframe it in that sector alone, I think for many people that's just a huge click-click going, Mm -hmm. oh, I never thought of it in that light. Um, And just one more thing mm -hmm. about my newsletter, always one section of the newsletter, and it just comes out once a month. You can always unsubscribe if it's not fitting your needs. But one section of the Mind Start newsletter is how to adapt a certain activity or a daily task and how to adapt it for the different stages of dementia. So every month you'll get another, some more ideas of, like our last one was how to involve them in cleaning up the yard for fall. Um, and then how you can do it at an early stage dementia, how a person at middle stage dementia might help, and then some sensory ideas for somebody at a later stage dementia. And we also offer ideas like that on our blog, um, on our website as well. Which is absolutely fabulous. Again, Monica, you want to give people your contact information? And, again, we will definitely have you back on the show. Um, But go ahead and shoot shoot out your website again. Yeah, the website is mind, M-I-N-D, and then a dash, start.com. On there is our blog, and from there you can find our Facebook, and we have a Pinterest site, um, and also sign up for our monthly newsletter. Um, another way to sign up for a newsletter is to, to text Mind Start to the number 22828. Um, and my email address is Monica, M-O-N-I-C-A, at mind-start.com. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking time with us today. It was a pleasure as always, and I look forward to having you back on the show again. Great, and thanks thanks to you, Lori. Thanks a lot for all you do and for having me as a guest. Well, great. We'll talk soon. Bye now. All right. Bye-bye. I'm going to go ahead and introduce our next guest, um, who once again I'm thrilled to have on. Dr. Gordon Atherley is the host and founder of um, and owner of Family Caregivers Unite. And this is a fabulous uh internet radio talk show that empowers family caregivers by amplifying their voice, spreading their vision, and publicizing their value. Family Caregivers Unite um, is a broadcast on empowerment and variety channels of Voice of America, and he's actually seen his audience grow by over 600% since 2010. And the show is syndicated on CJMP. 90.1 90.1 FM in the Powell River community. And um, you've got uh, the contact information on our 
on our website to get to him, but we will get into that a little bit more. I've had the honor of being both a guest on Dr. Atherley's show a couple of times, and this is, I believe, his second time back with us as well. He is an accredited journalist and a member of the British Medical Association and holds the British equivalent of the North America Ph.D. and M.D. degrees from the Canada's Simon Fraser University. And prior to retiring from his medical practice, um, he, his specialties were occupational uh, medicine and public health. So welcome, Gor- uh, Dr. Gordon Atherley. How are you doing today? Laurie, I'm doing just fine, and thank you for that introduction. You were obviously reading from the um, um, bio that I use when I'm applying for a job, so thank you very much for that. (laughs) Now, it's a pleasure to be on your show because, as you mentioned, I'm basically in the same business as you are, that is, uh, a talk show host. I think it's wonderful work, and it's so nice to work with you as a colleague uh, but also as someone who I hope is going to make some kind of contribution to your show, just as you have to mind. Oh, definitely. And I don't think there's enough of us out there. I, I think the, you know, caregiving, dementia, all the, the various facets out there, you know, people need to talk about this in an open fashion and um, be able to get pointed into the direction of the resources that they needed. And that's one of the reasons I'm so thrilled to have you back. So, Let's go ahead and get started. Um, I know that today we wanted to talk a little bit about persons with dementia um, and about uh, physical abuse, psychological abuse, financial abuse, and how they can be protected. And I really wanted to get some of your thoughts on that. Um, how, do we, how do we protect somebody with dementia uh, from abuse in these areas? First of all, that's a very good question. And secondly, it comes back to family caregiving because the key to it from a family caregiver's perspective is what I call watchful eyes. That is to say, the family caregiver keeps his or her eyes open for signs that things are going wrong and I'll talk about those in a moment. I'll also mention that this idea of eyes and ears is important when family caregivers come to work with healthcare professionals and we'll maybe talk about that one a little bit later on. Now, before I get into um, some of the details of protection, I'd just like to say a little bit more about the type of dementia I'm actually going to talk about. And that, as I'm sure everybody knows, is Alzheimer's disease, which is, by a long way, the most common form of dementia. Because, as you all know, dementia is just a general medical term, basically, that means things have gone wrong in the brain. And there are all kinds of causes of that. But Alzheimer's disease is a particular type of dementia that's tragically common. It's associated with aging. Uh, And I'm going to be a bit gloomy here, but I'm afraid this is the way things are. Um, Alzheimer's disease is a disease that can't be stopped, it can't be reversed, and it can't be cured. Now, it's associated with aging, 
but it's not necessarily part of aging. Nobody can quite explain at all why it occurs in the way that it does, but what we do know is that as the population aging ages, there's more and more of a challenge from Alzheimer's disease. Now, what, what are the challenges? Well, first of all, this disease destroys memory and thinking. Uh, and as Monica said, because I was listening to Monica, a great, great contribution, by the way, I admire her work very much. Uh, one of the factors is frustration. The person gets frustrated um, with all the problems with memory, thinking, and action. Alzheimer's disease slowly destroys the ability to carry out the simplest of tasks. And that again, to refer to Monica, that's why the kind of um, puzzles and activities she was talking about are so important. Alzheimer's disease destroys speech so that someone well down the road of Alzheimer's disease may not be able to communicate and I'm going to use an example, that they have a painful sore in the mouth. Because that's not altogether all uncommon in, in you know, people as they age. And because they can't express themselves, because they can't say to you, the family caregiver, I've got a sore in my mouth, it hurts, um, they can become aggressive because it's the only way of demonstrating that there's something the matter, and even the, the aggression can turn to violence. Now, another very sad thing about this Alzheimer's disease is that it destroys the person's ability to recognize even members of their own family. Um, so, everybody knows this. There are major challenges for family caregivers, but, and this is why, Laurie, the work you're doing is so important, some people with Alzheimer's disease do live out their lives at home, peacefully cared for by their family caregivers. So that's why you and I are walking side by side saying, let's, let's give all the information we possibly can and share all the the experience of other people with family caregivers. Now, that was a very long-winded answer to your question, and I'll just pause, but that, now I'd like to talk about what I mean by uh, watchful eyes and the kind of things that we can do. Okay. Laurie, can I go on? Or are you, uh, please, you, uh, please do. The, the more you talk, the better, because my voice comes and goes. I've got this cold thing going, so that is wonderful, and you're full of great information, so you just keep going. <laughs> All right. All I'll say to you is, when you've had enough, just stop me. <laughs> okay. So, all right. Now then, first of all, let's talk about the types of things that people with Alzheimer's disease need to be protected against. And they're sad things because they're bad things. In the physical world, that is when people are being looked after for their physical needs. Um, sad to say, but in the extreme, they can, these people can be bullied. They can be um, dealt with in an insensitive or even harsh or even brutal way. And because the person isn't able to describe what happened, unless there's a, somebody else watching or looking for signs, that 
can pass unnoticed, and that's tragic. Um, another one is the um, mental exploitation, um, the stigmatization and the cruelty. Um, cruelty arises sometimes because, unfortunately, there's still the stigmatization. You know, this is a this this person isn't right because this person isn't able to think, talk, express themselves. That's stigmatization. And if it undermines the way in which somebody with Alzheimer's disease is being cared for, then that's a very bad thing, obviously, and it's something that family caregivers should be on the lookout for. Now, the, the next one is... A third one is the financial abuse. And I've got an anecdote about this, and it's true. I live in a condo, and I'm a senior myself, and most of our residents, probably all of them, are seniors. Um, about two months ago, there was a notice on our concierge's desk warning us that one of our co-residents had been the subject of an identity theft. Now, what had happened, we subsequently learned, was that someone had called this elderly woman, claiming to be a long-lost relative, a nephew, and he said, I'm in some kind of trouble. I don't exactly know what it was, but what he needed was just her bank account number and password so that he could pay a fine or whatever it was and everything would be just fine. She trusted him and she was robbed of many, many dollars in the, in the thousands, in the tens of thousands. Now, as this story emerged, it became clearer and clearer that our co-resident was actually probably suffering from Alzheimer's disease, and now she's being cared for. But it demonstrates the vulnerability of people to all of these threats um, in such a way that they're living alone, they're living at home, and things are starting to go wrong, but in a way that doesn't attract a lot of attention. So that's the first thing. The second thing is there are people out there who identify the elderly. They can get their personal information in all kinds of ways, and the rest is what I was just describing. So how to protect it? It's back to the watchful eyes. It's if your family member, your senior, is living at home with you, the family caregiver, then um, it's the outside obviously that have to be watched out for and let's work back identity theft let's talk about um, the exploitation that is people at the door trying to sell them things um, then it's the kind of an exploitation that turns into the cruelty where the senior goes to a place where they're going to be cared for, not permanently, but just on a daily basis, and 
bad things happen, and that turns into either the, the mental or the physical bullying. So back to the question of the role of the family caregiver, and I'm, I'm just going to be very general now, but we'll talk about that more with some of the other questions that I think you're going to ask me, Laurie. But what it comes to is the family caregiver is normally the person who knows more, most about the family member who's slipping down this tragic road. And their eyes and their ears and their experience are the way to monitor, to watch over the situation, looking for changes, and then when they spotted a change, to take appropriate advice, appropriate action. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on. So that's my very long-winded essay. Um, I, was, um, I just have to explain that I was in university as, um, uh, as a professor for many years, and given half a chance, I slipped back into lecturing, which is what I've just done. <laughs> Well, that's great, though. It's it's good information. I had uh, an episode on with, I don't know if you're familiar with Bill Lightfoot, who um, he's out on the East Coast. In fact, I should check and see how he's doing with a, a big storm here. But he is just this huge advocate uh, for abuse and does a great job if anyone's looking for uh, someone to, uh, you know, if they need help in terms of maybe an abuse policy, if it's a community or if they're, they suspect things. He was a uh, police sergeant uh, for many, many years and is just full of stories and, and ways to be able to protect our elderly at large um, and specifically uh, people with dementia. Uh, wonderful, wonderful resource. So, But thank you for sharing your, your thoughts because it is really important and, and you know your story of your your person who who lives in your building um those things happen all the time all the time and um i I have a girlfriend whose mother they keep calling her um with business ventures and she'll invest you know a few hundred or a few thousand dollars and then she's waiting on her money in return, and then she forgets, and then they call and say, "Oh, you never sent it." and then she'll send it again. And so the family has really been struggling on how to tighten things up to protect her because she lives in an independent setting. And it can get really complicated really quickly because you still want to have the person have some freedoms. Um, right now they're they're having difficulty with the bank um, putting any restrictions because uh, both the, the mother and daughter are signers on the account and they won't put any restrictions on the mother, even if there's agreement to do so. They're saying she's a signer, and so it's 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 gotten really tricky, and so she's kind of doing some work around that, but and very, very frustrating um, and difficult to see and put so much pressure on the family to try to protect um, when you're not always there. So I think it's good stuff for us to to be talking about for sure. Can you talk about um, what your feelings are on how family caregivers um, can can work with a person with dementia the most effectively when they are, you know, going to the doctor and working with other healthcare professionals? That that is something I think that needs to be talked about and discussed, and 
and given your background as a physician, I think you'll be an ideal person to kind of talk turkey with on this. Uh, I think so many times we are so used to the doctors um, being in control and, and leading us down a path. Um, and I'm a firm believer that the, the family's voice um, has to get a little stronger sometimes, especially now when time is limited in terms of how long a physician can spend with somebody. Um, I think we need to be much more organized um, and get to the point. So what what are your thoughts on how can family caregivers be the most effective when dealing with healthcare professionals? First of all, I entirely agree with what you just said, and that is that with all the pressures um, on physicians, on healthcare professionals, there's a tendency for them to cut back the time that they're with with people and with their patients. And that's why the family caregiver um, needs, and this is my now, my view now, and it's based somewhat on my experience, is the family caregiver needs to be accepted as a member of the healthcare team. Now, what do I mean? What I mean is that doctors tend to see families as families and family members as family members. Um, and yes, they look after the family member with, with Alzheimer's disease um, through these family caregivers. But it really is only a matter of meals and cleaning and maybe a bit of washing. What's hard for my profession and healthcare generally to accept is what I call the eyes and ears role of family caregivers. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, it's what I was saying before, um, watching over the family member living at home, uh, going out for some kind of daycare or in some kind of facility, looking for changes. It, if it's your mom, you know her. What, what's changed? That then can go to the physician as information. That's the kind of information that a nurse might provide to a doctor when a patient is being monitored. Family caregivers can do that. Um, that's the first thing. Second thing is uh, the ears means asking questions of the doctor and not being afraid to do that, saying this, that, Whatever it is has just has happened. I've noticed this change. What does it mean and what can we do? And not being satisfied with necessarily with quick, dare I say, glib answers. Just is saying in effect, quietly and politely to the doctor, I need to know what you know so that I can work to the best advantage of my family member and also have a good, mutually respectful relationship with you, the doctor. So that's kind of broad stream of things. Now, another one is somebody with, with Alzheimer's disease isn't able to advocate for themselves. And it gets worse as the condition goes, develops. And therefore... Being able to act, family caregivers, as the advocate that says, what my mom needs is, what my mom uh, should be receiving is this. Now, I know that's tough talk, but if we see ourselves, family caregivers, 
as the eyes and ears, the real expert on the particular individual, that becomes an easier position to take. We've got to be polite. Um, <laughs> you know, even if the doctors aren't always polite back to us. But the fact is that this is the way family caregivers um, can win the respect of doctors and therefore they treat each other, that is the family caregiver and the doctor and the nurse and people like Monica, and I'm not in any way being negative when I say these things, begin to treat each other, family caregivers and these other professionals, as team members all working for the benefit of mom or pop with Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, I think that that's really, really important. I think the other thing that people have to come up with a system in terms of how they communicate and when they communicate with their doctors. Um, I, I'm a big advocate of journaling, which I have to admit in the early stages, you know, there's been a 30-year progression with my mom, I, you know, I didn't do. Um, but over the years, I've learned the importance of being able to identify when something has happened, not only what what's happened, but when it's happened and what occurred before and after the situation. And we were able to sometimes change the environment, change how we were doing things um, to avoid those things because it's not always a pill. Um, we're used to it being a pill when we go to the doctor, you know, to fix something. And that's not always the case. I, I think the other thing we have to be very conscious of is being respectful to the person with dementia and realizing that we can communicate behind the scenes, uh, get a list to the doctor via, you know, find out who their, their nurse is and um, email or call with specific concerns ahead of time. And then the doctor can bring those up in a non-threatening way where it doesn't look like you're tattling on them um, because I think that's how it's interpreted and then there's a lot of resentment and then they walk out the door and now the person with dementia is really angry at the caregiver when the caregiver and the care partner is just truly trying to help. Um, so I think there's some tactful ways to be able to approach that, but you have to have a sideline conversation with your physician or healthcare professional on how you can do that and it might be your role as a caregiver to educate them that we can't do it this way because it causes more problems. Depending on how familiar they are and how patient-centered they are, that can make a big difference. And um, I know for us that was huge. Um, I know for people dealing with maybe it's time uh, to have that driving conversation. It's much easier for the person... Uh, in charge, the healthcare professional, to bring that up, not seeming to be prodded by the care partner. And it's taken much better, um, and there isn't usually, you know, that resentment um, that often occurs, um, you know, kind of nailing, <laughs> nailing the caregiver um, against the wall, and why did you tell him that? Uh, you know, things can be done in a very... Um, respectful, gracious manner, and you can still use the power and the clout that the doctor has. Um, but again, this whole process should be as comfortable as possible, 
And each person, that's going to be a little bit different. And I know not all doctors um, or healthcare professionals like to twist things um, to be what I call truly patient-centered because they do have their set routines and processes. Um, so sometimes you might have to nail that home pretty hard. And, and I don't know if I'm speaking out of line. What are your thoughts on, on those comments that I just made, Dr. Atherley? I completely agree with you. And let me go back to the point that you made about, let me call it keeping notes, writing things down. The mm-hmm. doctor keeps notes. Um, they call medical records or whatever. It's a very, very strong point that I want to support you on. That is for family caregivers to keep notes. And if it begins early in the care, then it becomes a kind of daily routine um, that isn't upsetting when the family caregiver writes something down, uh, makes a note, takes the notes to the doctor, and sometimes talks to the notes. This is what happened, you know, over the past week, or shows some of the things to the doctor. And that partly responds to your point about not appearing to be a, a traitor to the yeah. to the family member. And that's profoundly important because trust is key to uh, this relationship. And it's a very complicated and difficult thing, as you everybody knows, is that if memory and thinking are slipping, trust is not something that can be automatically assumed to exist, even if it existed before. How do you feel about that? I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and if it's in a process, I think, too, when people are journaling or taking their notes, if they also include what they did to maybe contribute to the problem, so it's not always viewed as the person with dementia's problem, but that you're really coming at this as a team and you're evaluating yourself, not just them, I think that softens the blow and eases the process as well. But, uh, again, it's going to get down to everybody's personality, the family dynamics um, <laughs> that occur, all of those things have to be taken into consideration. There is no right or wrong way, but I, I encourage people to think out of the box. Um, make sure that you have powers of attorney so that you can even communicate with the doctor. I think that's a big mistake a lot of families make early on, and that is a critical piece. Um, you need to be able to communicate um, on this person's behalf. And so making sure that, uh, you know, healthcare directives are, are pulled together and you have these discussions and, and maybe not just make them up for the person with dementia, but make them up for yourself, that this is yes. a smart living thing. It's not an end-of-life thing. And, again, I think that can soften the blow in terms of why we're doing things, that this is just good, good business for life, you know, in general. Yeah. Um, there's a, I want to move on a little bit if you're, if you're okay with that, or did you have anything else sure. you wanted to add? Okay. Sure. Um, there's lots of talk about uh, medical care for people with dementia, um, but what, what are your feelings about the non-medical care um, for family members with dementia? And, and what do you mean by non-medical care? First of all, um, let me put it to you this way. 
Um, medical care, which is what doctors do, and you mentioned the pill, that's part of it, you know, the medication, and some of the things that also healthcare professionals do, um, they are necessary, and sometimes they're essential. But as Alzheimer's disease progresses, sorry, um, the value of those medical things either declines or doesn't increase, meaning that the medical care really is no longer sufficient if it ever was, meaning that other things are required. And one of the other forms of care that's required is family caregiving. And it comes back to something you and I are very firmly agreed on, this eyes and ears. It also comes back to something else that we're going, we need to consider is that the doctor, the nurse, everybody else, um, if I dare say this, needs to be educated to some degree, at least, on the importance of family caregiving as an equal partner with the medical care. And that's tough to take. And I'm going to give you maybe some examples of, of, of that kind of care. Um, but it's something that right now is being discussed even within the medical profession. And this will sound a, l a little bit off topic, but I'm going to use it as an example. Right now, there's a move to introduce what's called sensitivity training for physicians. What does that mean? It means training physicians in how to work with, treat, relate to people with mental illnesses and their families. And you might wonder why is that necessary? And the sad truth is that there's more and more evidence that we in healthcare, and I'm one of them, I've been, I'm retired, but I'm still one of them, um, have been insufficiently sensitive. We've been, if you like, discriminatory in the way we have dealt with people with mental illnesses. And so there's now a move to change. Part of that change is to say, for the psychiatrists, for the, doc the family doctors, for all the healthcare professionals, to say, you, the family caregiver, are a necessary and important part of the treatment, and we're going to work together with you. Now, if I can give you um, an example, and it also goes back to what Monica was saying, and that is about memory and its pleasant memories. It's something that happened... Um, as a result of one of my episodes of my show, sorry, and it was this. Uh, I, I ran an episode in which one of my guests was a very learned professor from um, a, a big university in the U.S. Um, talking about research he, he'd done into men as family caregivers. Uh, there are a lot of them. Um, they work differently from women, he found that, but at the same time, they w are 
and can be very effective family caregivers. So I thought I'll pair him, because I like to have two guests when that's possible, with someone who was a male family caregiver for a spouse with Alzheimer's disease. And this this man was a, was a retired firefighter and we were having a discussion, Laurie, somewhat along the lines of the one you, you and I are having. And I asked him to, to explain to us what he does for his wife. And he began to talk and then he choked up. And it wasn't anger, it wasn't grief, it wasn't anything negative. It was that he never actually heard himself talking about the things they do, the things he does, the things they do together. Now, one of the things he talked about, you see, they've been childhood sweethearts. Um, they loved dancing when they were childhood sweethearts and through their marriage. And he began in the episode on air to describe their life together, their early life together. Now, that was the episode then closed, shut down. And a day or two later, he called me and he, on the phone and he said something you ought to know. He said, as my wife and I were listening to the episode and I was talking about um, our life as sweethearts and our interest in dancing, she snuggled up to me. And that's a profound proof that love, that good memories, and that the voice that we use to describe the love, to pass the love, to, to express the love, the words we use and the way we do it, even when the family member is well down the road. And how far down the road is that he said, he told us, she really isn't able to look after her personal hygiene. So that was a serious case. So what I take away from that and I share with you all and with Laurie is exactly what you've been saying. That is... Warm, loving memory is part of the non-medical care, as well as all the physical things, the food things, as well as making sure that the household runs, making sure that the rest of the family is respected and involved, all those kinds of things. Now, the only other thing I'm going to say, it's back again, and I keep saying it, the eyes and the ears and the advocacy, because that's saying I'm advocating for my mom my pop because this is what they need and it may not be pills it may not be medical things it may be social things lots of social things and Laurie I'm sure you have many instances of that kind of thing you can talk about so non-medical care means what family caregivers do very uh, very nice, and you're right. I, there's tons of stories I have in terms of making connections with my mom who is in her very young stages 
Um, but she's still there. You know, she is not a shell of, the, of a body that people refer uh, to people with dementia with. Um, she is very much um, present and able to, I, I, and this is my belief, able to take in what's going on around her, just not necessarily able to communicate back all the time. Um, but from too many episodes where she has responded so appropriately, appropriately, I know she's taken it in. And so I think we have to be very careful of what is our attitude and our affect, what is our tone, um, because all of those things are absorbed and many times um, modeled back at us. So if we're anxious or frustrated or upset, um, and and we're showing that, and a lot of times we don't even know we're showing that, um, a lot of times we'll get that back from the person with dementia, and we wonder why. Well, a lot of times we brought it to the table. <laughs> you know, we started it, and they don't know why we're upset or why we're anxious, and um, but they're just kind of mirroring what they're seeing from us. So when there's a behavior, something that you don't like going on, I always say look first at yourself and see, you know, what kind of attitude um, and presence are you bringing to the situation because you very may have well ignited something that you weren't even aware of because we're not very conscious of our nonverbals. And they're very, 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 very important in our communication. You know, they're, they're the majority of our communication, um, and we forget that. We really take that for granted. So I think that that's a very important factor to to put right. into the equation with that. Um, any comments on that, thought? Only that I, it kind of leads into the question, and this is I'm picking up from the last few things you were saying, um, how family caregivers care for themselves. Because, and I'm using your, your not quite your words, but certainly your, your ideas. If, you're, if I'm stressed, um, if, I haven't, if I've lost sleep, if I'm feeling guilty, if I'm feeling exhausted, um, it shows. And the person who we're caring for with the family member with the Alzheimer's disease can sense it. So... If we, therefore, don't do something about our own challenges, and perhaps I'm over-dramatizing them, and I'm going to ask you in a moment to say whether you, what you think about them, but if we don't deal with those ourselves, then it's not just us well, that's, that are experiencing the bad things, but it's also the person we're caring for. Laura, do you believe that? Yeah, definitely, definitely do. I think it's uh, I think it's a very important piece of the of the equation that we have to look at um, for sure with the with the whole gamut. Um, this, you know, sometimes it's so simple and we make it so complicated. But if we just slow down and really kind of put our detective hat on, we can really see how things come into play and why they've come into play. And it really isn't near as complicated as we make it out to be. And so many times, 
we can find easy uh, resolution and and be able to change things. But again, we have to remember it's up to us to change because the person with dementia cannot. And uh, I think that's one of the the biggest problems that um, people have in terms of um, we always still are looking at this person with dementia to make the change. And uh, they really can't. So it's important for us. Just on. Sorry. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. Just on this this question of, I'm going to call it stress, but I probably mean more than that. Um, You, Laurie, if I can say this to you, have turned um, what's a major challenge into an opportunity to help other people. And I know you, I think, well enough to know that brings you satisfaction, pride, and at times happiness. And I'm saying that because I know that was the case with my firefighter. Um, He didn't call me because uh, it was just a matter of curiosity. He called me to say that he and his wife had a moment, more than a moment, a few moments, of happiness together. And so the self-care means that tough though the job is, it doesn't have to be all a sense of going uphill all the time, a sense of a losing battle, a sense of everything undermining. There are moments to be grabbed where there's happiness and those happiness and we're more and more starting to understand this is a big cure for stress anxiety getting depressed feeling guilty laurie what do you think oh i I definitely agree i think if you know and how i got started in all of this was you know i wanted to improve things so that others didn't have some of the frustrations that i had going through uh, the process. And so I think any time, again, you can feel purposeful um, in helping someone else out, that's huge. And, um, you know, I love what I do. And it, it's, and I've also found that there are no answers, um, that it really is a tool bag, and it's, it's taught me to become more, more flexible, more spontaneous, um, more accepting, um, you know, it, it's given me better quality of life, um, being able to to look at the other side and look for the goodness of the lesson within the disease. And that's been extremely powerful for me. And, uh, you know, I, to me it's been a gift my mom has given me through her disease, which, you know, people might go, that's pretty strange. <laughs> Um, but I really do see it's been that life-changing for me. I really do see her disease as this huge sacrifice and this gift for me to be able to live a better life and be a better person. And, um, you know, not everyone will agree with that, and they don't have to, um, but that's truly how I feel. And um, I feel blessed that I was able to go through this with her. And again, would I sign up for it? Probably not because you don't know the gifts that are available to you until you're in that crisis mode and until you 
turn that corner in your own mind and in your own heart saying, I can make something good of this. Right. And also, all of those things you've said, I think, enable family caregivers, people like you, Laurie, to um, be more supportive, be, be better in a good way as, as their family caregiving. In other words, it gives them strength. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, now, unbelievable strength. Yeah, it's kind of surprising yeah. what you find in your life that you didn't know um, you were capable of or, you know, that you you were um, able to receive as well. I want to say something else about that in in this way, that uh, I've been doing this um, talk show now, my talk show now, for about two and a half years, a bit more. And what I've learned is this profound lesson that um, people who've traveled this road um, so often it's as though they stop, look over their shoulders and see somebody else just starting out on the road and the person who's ahead on the the road looks back and reaches out a helping hand and it happens in all kinds of ways in all kinds of communities and in all kinds of situations. And it's very powerful. And the reason I'm raising it is that family caregivers are not sufficiently recognized, period. They they just aren't. Um, There's more recognition, but there's not enough. They need more attention. And that's why I mentioned this reaching out to help others, which you've done, Laurie, and others have done as well, so profoundly important, because it's starting to become a way of life. And people, I mean, for example, um, somebody can devise a way of caring for a particular problem. They find it useful. They think other people will find it useful. So they want to share that positive experience with others. And that's what your show, and I think mine too, enables them to do. And what it's, and you've used this in the information you've sent me, it's this voice, it's this, I want to speak about my life as a family caregiver. I want to share with you the things I've learned. Laurie just did it. I want to... um, tell you about the things that were helpful to me, just in case they may be helpful to you, people who are listening to me. And that's the way in which the empowerment of family caregiving is growing and developing. And it's very exciting, especially at a time when, you know, in many, many countries, not just in the US and Canada, uh, healthcare systems are under stress. The idea that family caregivers are part of it, are part of the solution, are supporting, let's face it, illnesses that medicine can't cure. That's a big message that needs to go to every level of government. It needs to be talked about. It needs to be promoted. It needs to be written about. And it needs to be shared with government, with hospitals, with doctors, 
with all the professions because it's a good message. And just on that particular point, what's also interesting that, you know, dementia, Alzheimer's disease doesn't respect any, any group. Doctors get it and so do their spouses. And they, so do nurses. So do other healthcare professionals. And so they start to live the life that family caregivers are living. And they have things to learn themselves about the art, that's what it is, of family caregiving um, from Laurie's show, from the work that Laurie's doing, and I hope a little bit from me too. Now, Laurie, I'm unfortunately in the middle of a bit of a crisis which everybody will recognize and that is my internet service has collapsed and I'm cut off from the world I think we all know that and mm-hmm. I have to now call them back call, you know the, the, the internet service email provider and I have got to sit through what looks like about an hour of fixing so <laughs> Laurie, I'm going to ask you, please, to forgive me. Um, And, you know, I'd like to sign off within the next two minutes or so without being rude or offensive, but my stress level is rising when I can't communicate. (laughs) So that's my problem. problem. Not a problem at all. I'm just thrilled to death with the time you gave us today, and we'll definitely have to have you back uh, Dr. Atherley, you're doing such great work with the Family Caregivers Unite program, and I'm so proud of of what you're doing and the reach that you have. And um, I just hope that you continue for many, many years because, uh, like you said, it really is about those hands reaching out to one another, making a difference, sharing sharing the tales of you know what it's like to be a caregiver. Um, not having people be embarrassed about it, um, but embracing it because it it breaks down that that isolation and that loneliness barrier that I think so many caregivers feel, and and that's just so destructive. And um, realizing, you know, because your show is so much broader than than mine, I focus more on the dementia, and the Alzheimer's. You you cover so many different aspects that caregiving really truly is a natural state, but it's about hooking people up with the proper resources um, and mindsets that they need to kind of get through the process. So can you share with our audience what is the best way for them to get a hold of you uh, to be able to participate in your show or if they want to uh, contact you via email once you're up and running? (laughs) Yes, I'm going to – I've got – Mm-hmm. Um, thanks, Laurie. I'm going to give my email address, um, which is relatively simple. I've got all kinds of websites and the rest of it, but I think the simplest is to send me a direct email. My my last name is Atherley, and it's spelt A like apple, T like tomato, H like hotel, E like echo, R like Romeo, L like Lima, E like Echo, and Y like Yankee, at, and the word is simpatico, and it's S-Y, like Yankee, M-P-A-T-I-C-O, dot C-A. 
and that will reach me and I'll respond and to questions and um, share them with you and I'd be delighted to hear from people. Laurie, I just want to say thank you for having me on your show. Um, and um, you've started something because I'm going to have you back on mine too. <laughs> you know, we're, we're walking arm in arm on this, and I mean that in the nicest possible way. That is to say, we're doing things that we both believe in. So let's work together and let's let's build what we're doing in such a way that um, family caregivers are empowered. Um, they get job satisfaction and they care for their family members in a way that the rest of the family realizes is wonderful work, the way the rest of the healthcare system recognizes is wonderful work and creates stories and experiences which we can all talk about on shows like this one, like yours and mine, with the view to giving people hope and giving them strength. Wonderful. Well, thank you again. And you can go ahead and get your Internet connection all, all <laughs> set up to go. Um, I know how frustrating that can be. Lord knows <laughs> I know that all too well. So, again, thank you so much for your time and all the wonderful work that you're doing, Dr. Atherley. Very much appreciate it. You have a great you're day. You're very welcome. Okay? You too. Bye thank now. you. Bye-bye. I'm going to go ahead and wrap up the show, but I, I do want to mention that there is a new clinical trial, uh, one that's in its third phase, and it's called Tau Rx Therapeutics, who is uh, ha- who has this clinical trial. And you can get to that trial and listen to a pre-recorded webinar at www.dontforgetalzheimers.com. That's www.dontforgetalzheimers.com. And there you will hear um, uh, Professor Claude uh, Wyshek and Dr. Jerry Hartland uh, will be talking. And he, Jerry uh, Hartland is the Chief Medical Officer of Tau Rx uh, Therapeutics. And uh, Claude is the Chairman um, of Tau Rx, and he's a professor of old age psychiatry at the University of um, Aberdeen. So I think you'll find that very, very informative, and um, if interested um, in that, they'll guide you into how to be able to sign up and get more information. Again, that's www.dontforgetalzheimers.com. And then again, uh, looking forward to speaking with you later on in the month. We've got lots of great shows coming up. We also have a Dementia Chats scheduled for November 13th. I cannot believe it's almost Thanksgiving. Um, And again, that is our webinar series where we talk with people who have dementia to be able to get answers. Our next show is going to be on the 5th of November with Dr. Ethel Lord. And um, we're also going to have an author with us uh, who's going to talk about her mother's journey. Then on the 8th, uh, Jane Wolf-Waterman and uh, and another author uh, will be with us. And then on the 26th, we've got something scheduled, and I think on the 16th as well. So lots of great shows coming up. We're going to have Abe's Garden on again and uh, their staff will be sharing with us all the wonderful things that 
they are planning for that new facility um, down in Tennessee. So in the meantime, again, thank you again for being part. If you are interested in being part of our show, please shoot me an email. You can just go to www.alzheimerspeaks.com and click on the contact button in the top portion and shoot me an email. Again, we interview people who have dementia, who are family caregivers, professionals, and advocates. Um, It's all about sharing the story. If you liked the show today, we would appreciate your help very much in terms of spreading the word. So if you wouldn't mind liking us um, or shooting an email to a friend uh, regarding the show, that's also very, very helpful. So have a brilliant week, and we'll talk soon. Bye now. It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed. Now, this podcast is about the non-financial parts of retirement, which many times can be even more challenging than the financial. We believe retirement is not the end, rather the beginning of what could be the most impactful, purposeful, and fulfilling season of a person's life. So don't retire. Become repurposed. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.